I'm going to read two passages this morning. I've been preaching a series on the Exodus and now Israel in the wilderness. And so we're going to read, first of all, Exodus chapter 17, but then turn to Revelation 12, which reminds us pointedly that we are this Israel of the New Testament, this Israel in the wilderness and this Israel that's fighting and contending not only for her life, but for the cause of God. Exodus 16, or 17, excuse me, we have the people again being provided for in the wilderness. In Exodus 16, they've been given manna, and they've also in various times been given drink. They have all along been given guidance, and here they're given protection in the wilderness from the Amalekites. In verse 8 through 16 is what we'll read, the word of God. Now Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, Choose us some men and go out, fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill, and so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands became heavy, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side, and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called its name, The Lord is my banner, or Jehovah Nissi. For he said, Because the Lord has sworn... The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Thus far we read in Exodus chapter 17. And now we turn to Revelation 12 again to find New Testament light shed upon the truth and upon our path in the New Testament. And Revelation 12 is a rehearsal of the... fact that there is a woman who's clothed with the sun who represents the Old Testament people of God who gives birth to a child, that's Jesus. And then there's this dragon, and I'll pick up at verse 3. Another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. Now this is the devil, of course, children. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And then from the birth of Jesus right to his ascension, the narrative goes, and her child was caught up to God in his throne. And then The woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. 
And we're going to skip over now the narrative of what was going on in heaven to verse 13. Now when the dragon saw that he'd been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent, the devil. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. And the dragon was enraged with the woman and would be with the church and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who kept or who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Thus far we read Old Testament and New Testament, one word of God that lives and abide forever and this one word is Jesus and his gospel. But we read now in Exodus chapter 17 this narrative of the fighting of Amalek with Israel, of World War I. It's not something that just happened in the 20th century. It's not something that's like unto what's happening in Ukraine. But this is the principal war that there ever has been throughout history since the fall. Actually, the war is a result of God's promise to the devil, really, addressed to the devil, that there would be enmity or spiritual opposition between the devil and his sons and the church and her sons, between the church and the devil and the wicked. The fact that Israel now is in the wilderness is a picture of the playing forth of that enmity. Remember... Israel is the children of the Exodus. They've been called out of Egypt. They're about two months along in their journey on the way to Sinai to be constituted officially as the people of God at that sacred mountain. Before they get there, they have to learn of the sacred war and that she is to be a warring people fighting against the enemies. She will learn this lesson indeed, and she will learn the care of God in this first of the battles of Israel in the wilderness and presaging the battles that she will engage in Canaan. This, beloved, is for us. Not only do we have the mention in the New Testament in Revelation 12 of the fact that Israel is the continuation of the Old Testament church, but we have the fact that she is in the wilderness and there's a devil who is someone who is out to do his devil best to destroy this people by the flood of his iniquity and foul transgression. And so the church, which would be church today, is called here in this primary passage, in this amazing passage of the Old Testament, to be a militant church. She's called not only to observe what is, that there's a battle, but she is called to contend earnestly for the faith and for the souls of men. And so we want to consider Israel and the Amalekites and apply this constantly to our own lives in church. First of all, we consider that she is to remember Amalek. There's a memorial set up here, and 
Uh, it's a memorial in a book, the first mention of writing in the Bible, which is this biblical memorial that God is going to utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek. There's a fight that God's fighting, and implied in that, and in Moses building an altar, Jehovah Nissi, or my banner, is that we are to fight. So remember Amalek, remembering the enemy. And then we are to remember to fight, and to fight exactly the way Israel fought, except that we know the spirituality of this battle far more than Israel. And then finally, and gladly, we remember here the victory that God gave, the utter destruction to the Amalekites that were there and that we shall have in the battle. Interesting, the little words of the Bible, then or now Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim. Amalek comes forth seemingly out of nowhere. Amalek is one of the descendants of Esau, and Esau was the brother of Jacob, remember that? They were twins in the room of their mother, and Jacob was one who despised the birthright, and, or excuse me, Esau is the one who despised the birthright, married outside of the covenant, was a grief to his parents, and in every way showed himself hostile to the people of God, and numbering also Jacob as his dyed-in-the-wool enemy. The sons of Amalek now come, and it's many generations since Jacob and Esau, but the Amalekites no doubt know something about the Israelites. They are here, not just as some have suggested, to keep Israel from their pasture land in the Sinai Peninsula. Indeed, that would be a natural reason for these Amalekites to, to skirmish over pasture land. The pasture was scarce in the desert. And even now, in the spring of the year, as we're, we're uh, told in the narrative, there would be a ascending to the high plains so that the, the animals could be spared something of the heat of the day and could have more pasturage and protection. But the real reason is that they were enemies of the people of God, and they would not only destroy them, but they would destroy their plan to enter the promised land. Remember, the birthright of Jacob had to do with his being a child of God's blessing, which included the land of promise to which Israel at this time was headed. Esau, at every point, would thwart that plan of God. In fact, Israel or Esau was said here, and you could translate it uh, in verses 14 and 15 of Exodus 17, to be vying against the throne of God at this time. Here we have also in the book of Deuteronomy a comment of what was going on at this time in chapter 25, verse 17. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt. Again, remember, remember. 
as you were coming out of Egypt, how he met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks. So you get a, a full filling up in detail of the annals of this Amalekite war. They met him on the way, but attacked in the rear where all the stragglers were. When you were tired and weary, it was among the baggage, maybe, among the women and the children and those who were not able or fit for war, and among those who were among all of Israel that was tired and weary. But note this, Deuteronomy 25, he did not fear God. There was no fear of God, the holiness of God, the consequences of daring to attack the apple of the eye of God. He did not fear God. Therefore it shall be, Moses goes on, when the Lord your God has given you rest from your enemies all around in the land which the Lord your God has given you to possess as an inheritance, that you will blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget... So remembrance of Amalek is key here as an exhortation in the passage to this people of God gathered here. They must remember Amalek, that he's an enemy and that he's God's enemy and therefore that they should fight against this enemy and not make friends with his enemy. So here you have this type, Amalek, a type of what meets you in the wilderness, a type of the people who are descendants of the one that Romans 9 says, God hated, Jacob have I loved, and Esau have I hated. These are the haters of God, and therefore his wrath is upon them. And at this time, the Amalekites are fulfilling or filling up their measure of the cup of iniquity. They are the ones who are doomed to destruction. God would see to it. He's that holy. And beloved, this is exactly the kind of people that we meet in the wilderness. And the wilderness, really, according to Revelation 12, is this entire world. The world that we should love not, nor the things that are in this world, because all that is of the world, the pride of life, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, is not of the Father, it's of Satan. Not talking about the culture of the world and the good things and refrigerators we enjoy and the flowers of the world and so on, but the world as worldlings and sons of Satan, Amalekites, every one in this wilderness. These are the people you meet who fight against you and against whom you must fight. Now, what does that world look like today? Well, very kind sometimes in offering water even. It's striking that in, in Revelation 12, the, the devil, he enters the wilderness. He's in this wilderness and he lets go from his mouth the stream like a flood to carry away the people of God, the, the woman, and then the individuals who keep the commandments of God. There's a flood that comes from his mouth. Well, what's that flood? Well, things like philosophy, 
things like political policy, things that would entertain us, and things that would even be what we think we need. And here's the rub, you see. We're in the wilderness, and it's a waste-howling wilderness, and there is no water to be had so easily, and here's the devil. He has a whole flood of water for us and for our children and for our young people and for those who go to college. He has a whole flood of foul transgression, but looks like water it does and would feed us and our children. And we could be a people there that could be in the wilderness, but not of it, and still drinking the water and not realize one day that our indigestion and the signs that we're spiritually lethargic is because we've been drinking the water of the world. Here's a lesson here of of Amalekite. In all, the fact is striking that this is a descendant of the covenant. That is, these are descendants of Esau who was of the flesh of Isaac and Rebekah. And so, very close to the people of God, blood-wise, and that's the case today. In the church of Jesus Christ, in those who go astray, who reveal themselves to be Amalekites, are the worst of enemies in the people of God's history and in our history. And we're tempted to compromise with them, to drink of the water of the philosophy and so on, and to compromise doctrines that, oh, they'll say, aren't that important after all. We need to remember this as united Reformed churches, lest we become more united than Reformed. We need to remember this. We need to remember that there's a war and it's close to home. These are Amalekites. These are ones who are descendants of those who used to keep the Sabbath, but now they've learned better of the, of the gospel of freedom and we can be free from Sabbath-keeping as if there's only nine commandments. And in the name of, well, we worship God every day. We love it. There are ministers in the United Reformed Churches that are teaching that the Sabbath-keeping is an option. They are wrong. It's the end of worship when there's no call to worship on the appointed day as the early, zealous, thankful church remembered. And so they gathered on the Lord's Day. This is the Lord's Day, the Bible says, isn't it? So that you rejoice and are glad in it and frequent the house of God and contribute to the ministry of the gospel and to the church of Jesus Christ. It's Amalekitish to whittle away at the commandments of God, not only, but the gospel of God. Amalekites, Arminians, same, really. 
in principle, denying the sovereign grace of God. It's by man's will that we're saved, and therefore we can drink of that doctrine and have something of accountability and responsibility that you won't have if you just preach grace. Oh, beloved, if you just preach grace, all that happens is that God is glorified and Christ is glorified. That's good enough for me. You too? Just grace. Just free forgiveness. Just the fact that by the grace of God, we're not Amalekites. That's striking here in Exodus chapter 17. Then came Amalek and fought with Israel in Rephidim. You have here the establishment of two sides, Amalek and Israel. True people of God, true sons of Satan. And here it is playing out. And it is today. By the grace of God, we are what we are. We receive what we've been given. The the godly faith as it is in Jesus Christ articulated in the creeds of the church. And so we're helped along knowing that the fathers have fought this same battle against Amalekites everywhere and philosophies everywhere and also in church compromises everywhere. Yes, you might be thinking now as you're listening to this, well, this is kind of heavy. Oh, beloved, it's a serious. The war against the Amalekites is raging. Don't you know? And it's not just about ministers and their theology and theologizing and something in an ivory tower, but it has to do with you, individual people, and parents, and elders, and deacons, and new believers and old believers contending with the flesh because, yes, in my flesh dwelleth no good thing but every Amalekite imaginable. It's a fight, is Christianity. And on the day of rest especially, you've got to learn that again and again. And that's a comfort. That's a comfort because you learn also you rest in the midst of the war in Jesus Christ. Now, beloved, we fight this. Front and center is the fact that Joshua was called by Moses to choose some men and go out and fight with Amalek. And so Joshua did that, and he fought. And then at the end we read that Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. And really he mowed them down. That's the word for defeated. It was a complete crushing of those Amalekites. This time, Israel's fighting. Good thing. All they'd been doing is complaining. Look at this just before that, Massa and Meribah, and they complained about the lack of water. They tempted the Lord, saying, verse 7, is the Lord among us or not? If, imagine that. But that's the nature, you see, of sin. When we start complaining, we start complaining about the fact that we don't think God is really with us. 
We don't believe in Jesus, who is God with us. Is the Lord among us or not? Is there a Jesus? Is he worth fighting for? Has he really died for me and risen for me? Am I a member of his church and his body? Am I saved by grace alone? Am I going to heaven because he's paved the way and he's my representative? So Joshua fights at this time. They're, they're fighting. Seems like there's not a complaint, and they fight. But the first thing we have to remember here, though, beloved, is this. Not about the fighting of Joshua, but about Moses. So you're going to remember the war, and you're going to remember the Amalekites, and you're going to get bloody yourself. Remember Moses picture of Jesus here, leads the congregation to Jesus. That's what ministers should do every Lord's Day, every pastor visit. Let me tell you about Jesus. Sir, we would see Jesus. Moses, type of Christ, isn't he? Mediator between God and man and man and God. Sinful, to be sure, meekest man in the earth, certainly like Jesus in that way, but this man of God. And without any indication that God himself had said to Moses to go to the top of the mountain and to raise his hands and so on, he does it. We're not told that he prays, but this is what he does. He, he or at least he, he raises his hand in what was a, stand, a, a stance of prayer, not a commandment to us that you always have to raise your hand in prayer. You may, but he did. And this is a picture, of course, of Jesus who will give his life for the congregation, who is really the captain of the souls of the people of God, the captain of the army. But here, only a type, only a faint picture of what Jesus does, and namely, that's everything. But here, the fact that Jesus prays that amazing? That Jesus mediates between heaven and earth and earth and heaven, and especially between the people of God and heaven. And God hears this man of God. He's off the battlefield. And we're led, as it were, to Revelation 12, where Jesus rises up to heaven. Well, what's he doing in heaven? You know that? Hebrews tells us he ever lives to make intercession for us. And Jesus' blood... That's why the people are the people of the Exodus. And the tenth plague was that killing of the, the firstborn, wasn't it? But in Israel, the killing of the Passover lamb. Jesus' blood represented here, and Moses now leading the way of the people of the Exodus. And note here in verse 15, Moses builds an altar here. He builds an altar. No mention of sacrifice given, but that would be the first time ever in the Bible that an altar was given to Israel and no sacrifices were given. So it's a, it's a good implication that we do when we say there were sacrifices at this time, picturing the blood of Jesus. You see, nobody wins the battle against the Amalekites in the flesh, in the home, in the church, in society, except Jesus wins the battle. 
And Jesus bathes in blood the people of his good pleasure. That's what you got to remember first. Even when God's calling us to remember the battle against Amalek, and Moses builds a memorial here, and we're reminded that God fights all the time. Remember the battle that Jesus has fought, and that he fights. Remember that. And then, when you're fighting, you're seeking to fight, and this is what Moses tells us. That's Jesus. Fight the good fight of faith. That's Paul. Earnestly contend for the faith once delivered to the the saints. That's Jude. Take up the sword, Jesus says, the spiritual sword, because his kingdom is not of this world. Fight. Remembering, however, Jesus. But then, truly fighting. That would be, of course, repenting of sin. That would be not going to the places, young people, that are not friendly to you, really, though they show themselves smiling. The houses of ill repute, the bars after work, you go for happy hour and it becomes ungodly hour. Watch what you watch on the internet. Fight the Amalekites in your own life with prayer, just like Jesus. And here, in fact, is evidence to us and an example to us of what fighting is all about. The the Latin scholars used to call it ora et labora, ora, pray, and, and work. And here we could see it's, it's pray and, and fight. Pray and fight. Or the settlers would have said, pray and keep your powder dry. Depend on God and then use the means that he gives to depend on God more. Fight especially in the preaching of the gospel. You do that here, don't you? And you don't mind that, do you? If that turns people away, I thought the church was supposed to be nice. Oh, I hope you're nice. But not to Amalekites. If you're nice to Amalekites, you'll be filled with Amalekites here in the church. And then in the consistory room, then in the pulpit. If you're nice to Amalekites in your family life and you're befriending the world and you act like hypocrites and you dress up maybe and you go to church, but then then you're just doing whatever you want at home and you're shouting at your wife and you're shouting at your husband and and all this stuff and you're just worldly, then you're going to be Amalekites in the generation. God curses and visits the iniquity of those who hate him. And hating him, beloved, begins in not loving him as you ought. And here, then, is something we need to learn about how to deal with the Amalekites completely 
destroying them. You want to know? We said we're to remember the Amalekites, we're to remember Jesus, first of all. Now, the Bible teaches us to remember a guy named Saul. Turn with me, 1 Samuel. Here's what we learn about Saul and what he did with the Amalekites. 1 Samuel 15. Because, you see, after this, and they were destroyed completely at this time, the Amalekites still survived. But at one time in the history of the kingdom of heaven, Samuel said to Saul, who was, remember, the king after the heart of the people, after the other nations, he was a reprobate himself, who died by suicide after he had engaged in witchcraft and other things. But here is why the throne was taken from him. Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore heed the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel. See, they're still remembering this. That's good. How he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them, but kill both men and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Now here, as an aside, is one reason why people hate the Bible. Because of these holy wars that involved killing of men and women, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep and camel and donkey. Nobody loves that, to be sure. Nobody likes that in the world. And they therefore reject the sovereign God who told his people to do it. So, so did Saul do it? Kind of. So Saul gathered the people together and numbered them in, in Telaim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to a city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. And Saul said to the Kenites, Go and depart and get down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul attacked the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He also took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, and the lambs, and all that was good, and were unwilling to utterly destroy them. But everything despised and worthless, they, that they utterly destroyed. All right? Remember Saul is what I said. Why? Because in Saul is the epitome of compromise. In this principal thing, the war of the ages, World War I, God is saying here, take no captives. I sent my son. I love you this much. He didn't halfway die. He really died. He didn't halfway pay for sin. He really did. He didn't halfway endure my wrath. He really did endured and drank to the full the cup of the wrath of the Holy God. Now you, be on my behalf. 
Take no captives in your life of temptation. Put down the book, the girly books. Stop visiting the iniquity of the internet sites and the internet sites that lead you to iniquity. Stop wasting your time. I've learned the past week in the taking of a 19-year-old girl from the congregation of Sovereign Grace, how short is life? And recently, in God taking a godly grandmother and wife of, this, of a man in this church at 94, I've learned how short even is a long life. Let's fight the good fight. It hurts, doesn't it? It hurts me to deny yourself and your flesh. And maybe you're lonely. And maybe you work hard. You do, probably. So you deserve a break, don't you? couple beers, this and that. And you say, there's nothing wrong with that. But what's the motive? Really, what is the motive of us? You see, we can tend to think that everybody's our friend. Everybody who's a patriot, maybe, is a friend. They like America, don't they? We like America. We want there to be some semblance of the justice of God among the judges and among the legislatures, of course. And we'd put away all of the abortion and all this garbage from Amalek. But let's remember, America is not the kingdom of God. The church of Christ is. America is built not on the Bible and it's not even acknowledging that Government is of God. It says it's of the people and by the people and for the people. And we're glad for the freedoms and the the constitutional liberties, but let's not make friends with America so much. In the fight of the culture wars, for example, and to getting good societal things done, let's let's, let's take care not to substitute the fight against cultural chaos for the fight against the Amalekites. Every time you think of America now, from now on, think Amalekah. Pronounce it that way, Amalekite. Because if you're just an American, you're just an Adamite. If you're just a European, it's not about how great your European Union is. You're in in, cahoots with the devil. You're part of the spewing out of the flood of iniquity that says, these are good, this is good, and all of this. And it's a kind of good, and you say, well, that's good. But it's not a good that's born of faith to the glory of God and according to the law of God. It's a good without God. It's a good as Amalek, as long as God is not on the throne As long as Jesus is a savior from bad stuff. But not that he's Lord. Well, much more could be said about the fight and about what we ought to be remembering. 
fight against Amalekite, the Savior, and Saul. Don't be Saul. The battle is the Lord's. The battle, there's a complete route here. Don't you love it? The first battle, God will teach that he wins the battle. Revelation 12, we read, even read that the earth fights for the people. And I take that to mean somehow that because Jesus has shed his blood, the whole creation now is, is on the side of the people of God. Now that might mean that we endure privation and deprivation in this earth. It might mean that, and it will mean for most of us, unless the Lord tarries or the Lord comes before we die, that we'll die. But it certainly means that God, because of his Son, freely gives us all things. And that means sometimes you're, you're the bad times in life and, and sometimes hurts in life. He, he, he does that because he wants you so much to think of heaven. Of heaven! Of heaven! But it's a total route, and you need not fear. That's what I leave you with. You need not fear. Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword, but, and that's for you too, beloved. You're going to win. It's not in the bag, but it's in the counsel of God. And it's because of the grace of God. And oh, we need to know that. Why did Israel win? Because Joshua was so, such a good sword fighter? Because he had a bunch of mighty men around? No. In fact, you read, the only way that Israel won is when Moses' hands were up. When he got tired and they were down, Israel was discomfited. The Amalekites got the upper hand. When the arms rose, Israel won. And so, let's not forget this, when it says that Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword, it wasn't because Joshua and the people and the edges of their swords. And at the end of the day, it's not a preacher and his preaching or his oratory. It's not because elders are so good. It's not because you're so good. It's not because you did this and this and that and the other thing. Here we are, we're back to it. It's because of the grace of God and the intercession of Jesus and the blood of Jesus. Now that, that truth, don't you think, is worth fighting for? Amen. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would bless us. Make your face to shine upon us in the battle. We're tired, we're weary. Our arms are tired and weary. We are in earnestly contending for the faith. And we're tired of our, our lapses, Lord, and our inconsistencies. Deliver us from those lapses, inconsistencies, and backslidings. Give us today, Lord, having heard the word, the call to valiancy, to be fearless and full of faith and to fight the good fight because Jesus, he is our captain, the author, the finisher of our faith and 
the conqueror of every enemy. Hear our prayers for this church. May it be a loving church, loving the truth above all, and God, who is the way and the truth and the life, for Jesus' sake, amen.